Delaware County's premier podcast with your hosts, Dennis and Michelle. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to This Week in the Bear Cave. I'm your host, Dennis Zerl, and this week we are sponsored by Abode Real Estate, your professional real estate advisors in Colorado Springs and Teller County, the historic Butte Theater in Cripple Creek, Colorado, bringing you the best in melodrama productions in the United States, and Peak Washing LLC, the pressure washing professionals for that dirty job. Well, I must say that it has been an interesting week with all these election results and also the non-results, but we're going to talk about some more of that during our segment with Trevor Phipps, our fuel producer. In the meantime, we are continuing to salute our veterans this month here in the Bear Cave, and uh, I apologize in advance because I had to do some shifting and programming this week. I, I came down with this kind of gnarly stomach bug. And uh, Carol Harvey was supposed to come in today and talk to us in the bear cave, but I didn't really want to give her the bug or whatever this is. Maybe I just ate some bad food last night. I don't know. But uh, needless to say, we've rescheduled her for the 29th of November. And uh, I may talk about my military career just a little bit to uh, not belabor it and bore you people. That may be something to fill the time in. But uh, anyway, I do apologize to Carol and everybody who was getting ready to listen to her. More of her and less of me is always a good thing, but we will be having Josh Dorsey coming in on the Bear Cave hotline, so that hasn't changed. Now, next week we'll be down for the uh, Thanksgiving holiday, and we'll be back the following week after that, and man, I can't believe it's the middle of November already, and uh, judging by the temperatures, it feels like January, so stay bundled up or maybe make that nice warm fire and listen to us in the Bear Cave, or not. But anyway, we did have a big show lined up for you, like I said before, and uh, we will continue that with our theme for Veterans Day. So again, I apologize, and we will have Carol coming in. But in the meantime, I just want to say that I appreciate all the veterans that I served with back in my career. I joined the Army in 1974. Man, it seems like just yesterday, but judging by how my body feels, it definitely was 1974. And uh, when I came in, I was a uh, very young man, fresh out of high school. And December 4th, 1974, I joined the United States Army. And I have to kind of relate to uh, David Ott's story as well. I wanted to see the recruiter. And initially, I wanted to join the Coast Guard. I had no intention of even being in the Army because I thought, yeah, Coast Guard's pretty cool. Maybe I'll get to Hawaii and a couple of those other places. But it just so happened that the Coast Guard was not taking anyone at that time. It was towards the end of Vietnam. They weren't really recruiting anybody heavily for whatever reason. And to make a long story short, I wound up joining the Army. Initially, I wanted to be a Green Beret because my brother was a Green Beret. I remember him coming home from Vietnam. I'm guessing it was probably 1968, 1969. And he had this green beret on and uh, I got to hold it and kind of show my friends, you know, this is a green beret. My brother was a green beret. So I always kind of wanted to walk in his footsteps, but you couldn't enlist directly to become a green beret. You had to have some time in the army and then, you know, try out for special forces at that time. So I went to the wonderful Fort Polk, Louisiana for basic training and advanced individual training or advanced infantry training. And then it was off to Fort Benning, Georgia, where I was going to become a paratrooper and become a member of the 82nd Airborne Division. And that's what I did for about three and a half years until my enlistment was up. And uh, I got out of the Army, came back to Salt Lake City, where most of my family was at the time, for about 30 days turned around, enlisted in the 19th Special Forces Group, and went back on active duty. Because at the time, you could only re-enlist for present duty assignment, and I was not going to stay in the 82nd Airborne Division at that time. 
So long story short, I served for about 20 years in various special forces units and uh, finally decided that it was time to get out because my my body just wasn't handling it anymore. I was kind of a dinosaur at the ripe old age of 40 and became a filmmaker. So it was either that or... uh, I didn't know what I was going to do. I kind of feel like some of the veterans these days, when you get out, you're kind of glad to get out, but then you get out and you go, oh, now what? What do I do? I was already in the motion picture industry at the time, so it just was a natural transition for me to become a filmmaker. So packed up and moved to L.A., where I spent the last 20-some-odd years until I had enough of that. And uh, in a way, COVID was kind of a godsend because that's what brought me back to Colorado. And uh, initially, I grew up between Durango and Salt Lake City, Utah. And I've, I've said that many times on this show. But uh, all total, I spent 24 years serving my country. And uh, you know what? I do miss those days in the camaraderie, like uh, David Ott mentioned last week. There's nothing quite like being around people that are like-minded and uh, enjoying their company. So I'm I'm really happy to have moved to an area that has so many veterans, and uh, I've got to say that I salute you. It's been a pleasure to meet you, and I'm meeting more veterans all the time. And I got to throw a shout out to uh, Elijah Murphy at the Historic UDN and the American Legion who sponsored the Veterans Breakfast on the first Saturday of every month. So that's kind of the long and short of it. I'm proud to have served, and I'm proud to have served with people that I still maintain a relationship and contact with these days. So. That's about it for me and uh, and my story. But uh, anyway, moving on, there was one story that really caught my eye this week, and it was all about one of our Bear Pile alums, and that is U.S. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Now, Good old Alejandro must really think the American people are stupid and naive because this is what happened last week. Now, we all know that the southern borders are an absolute disaster. We have had over 2.2 million illegal aliens make their way into this country as well as be arrested this past year. And that's a record number of people entering into the United States or trying to enter into the U.S. And that doesn't seem like it's slowing down anytime soon. Today, I believe a federal judge in Washington, D.C. struck down the Title 42 program that was been around since uh, the Donald was in office. So open up the floodgates. But it certainly hasn't gotten any better thanks to Sniffy Jonah's stupid border policies carried out by border puppet little Al Mayorkas. And uh, we're still waiting for Obama to actually go to the border like she said she was going to some two years ago. But I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. So here's the question for the Sniffy Joe administration. What does one do to deflect from the heat that the administration is currently getting? Well, that's easy. Like most things in the government, you find a patsy or a whipping boy that's going to take one for the team, right? You have one of your cabinet members fire somebody or an underling that's on your team and it doesn't reflect on your administration, right? So you can't really fire little Al because that would mean that you actually admit that your policies suck and that they don't work. So what do you do? Well, you throw someone under the bus and that's exactly what the Sniffy's administration did by making border chogi boy Alejandro do the dirty work for you. So they decided to give U.S. Customs and Border Protection Commissioner Chris Magnus an ultimatum. Either resign or get fired. Wow. Shocking, right? Yeah, not so much. Magnus, who was appointed in December of 2021, decided to resign in a letter on Saturday to Sniffy Joe. My, how nice. Just blame someone who's actually carrying out your policies that you put into place 
Makes sense to me. And uh, Magnus is no newcomer to law enforcement. He has been a chief of police. He's been a law enforcement officer for most of his life. But what Magnus said is that he was pressured by Little Lau to step down or be fired, so he chose to resign. Well, this is the biggest shakeup so far in Sniffy's administration. And if I remember correctly, the Donald had already plowed through dozens of people in the first two years of his time at the White House. But anyway, it signals that record number of border crossings are finally a concern for Sniffy. And of course, with all the bad press he's getting from governors on the border, they have finally forced his shaky little hand. But you would think that he would actually take some kind of action and try to keep people from crossing over illegally. But no, not at all. So what do you do? You blame someone else and you fire him. Get out! That's the way you do it, and you continue to ignore the problem blaming the underbosses. Is anybody surprised by all this? Well, I can almost guarantee you that if the Republicans get control of the House, which it looks like they may, little Al is going to be in front of that whatever council they have, and they're going to call for his resignation if he's not fired. There has actually already been a call for his head by Representative Clay Higgins, a Republican from Louisiana. But it's unlikely that Sneffy Joe will follow through on that. Now, you can't lose face, you know. That's the kind of ongoing craziness that we're facing for at least another two years. And uh, man, oh man. But for now, that's how uh, little Al is going to run his shop. It really is time for Sneffy to pack up his Depends and take little Al with him. I mean, what a mess. And it's not going to get any better anytime soon. Now they'll just put another hack in for Magnus's place and eventually they'll fire that person as well. And that's kind of how it works these days, I guess. Well, all this does is give us plenty of candidates to toss on the bear pile this week. But, uh, oh, geez, what a mess. Well, there's another story that's kind of making headlines and man, I don't even want to go there, but I am going to. And that is about Harvey the Rapist Weinstein. He is back in court in Los Angeles for... 11 more charges that he raped and abused women, and the charges range from forced sexual assault to sexual battery. Now, I could care less about this piece of human waste, but uh, one of the women involved in this latest salvo is the wife of California Governor Gavin Dippity Do Newsom. Yep, that's right. His wife, Jennifer Siebel Newsom, is a documentary filmmaker who identified herself as Jane Doe number four. Well, she testified that Harvey the Well raped her back in 2005, and it was an emotional testimony that's still going on today as Siebel Newsom is in tears. She said, There was this big person coming towards me, and I felt like everybody sort of backed away when I first met him. It felt like the Red Sea was parting. Well, in September of 2005, Siebel Newsom agreed to meet Harvey the Whale at a hotel in Beverly Hills to discuss business. I think at that time she was still an actress or a fledgling actress, and of course, you know how it goes. He wanted to talk to her about possibly being in one of his films and talk to her about some documentary projects. She went on to testify, I thought that there was a genuine interest in talking to me about my work. Well, then, as is his M.O., allegedly people unexpectedly left this meeting and left Weinstein alone with Siebel Newsom in his hotel suite, and any interest in her career faded away at that very moment, guaranteed. Well, as the story goes, Weinstein allegedly came out of the bathroom in nothing more than a smile and a robe and began groping her while he was touching himself. Ugh, sorry to paint that picture for you. She said she saw nothing but horror. Horror is what she felt. She said, I'm trembling. This is my worst nightmare. I'm just a blow-up doll. I was so violated and I don't know how that happened, she sobbed. 
I didn't see the clues and I don't know how to escape. Now, when she was asked why she stayed in the hotel room by the prosecutor, she said, you just don't say no to Harvey Weinstein. And this is the same story we hear over and over again about this scumbag whale. So this all happened in 2005. Now, she married Newsom in 2008. And when Governor Deputy Dew finally met Weinstein, he thought that he was a little sketchy as well. Well, he would know, wouldn't he? Weinstein was one of those big financial contributors to uh, Newsom's campaign. And after some deducing and some questioning with his wife and, you know, she gave him the story, I suppose, Newsom allegedly returned the money back to Weinstein in October of 2017. Well, that took a while, but you know what? I uh, She probably had a hard time talking to her husband about this because it was such a heinous crime that was committed against her, allegedly. Now, here comes the capper. It's not the fact that Harvey the Whale is such a scumbag. It's Weinstein's attorney, Mark Worksman, that said without her husband, she would be just another bimbo who slept with Weinstein to get a hit in Hollywood. Yep, he said that in front of God and everybody. What? He went on to say in his opening statement that most of these women had agreed that this was, uh, get this, transactional sex. Yeah, that's the, that's the new term now. And that they knew what they were doing when they agreed to meet with Harvey the Whale. No way! Okay, I'm just going to leave that right there. All I know is that Harvey the Whale is a scumbag of the highest order and that he deserves to spend the rest of his miserable life in prison. I don't care. Rot away there, Harvey. But what kind of person actually defends this scumbag and makes these kinds of accusations in public? It's amazing to me. Maybe he should spend some time with Harvey the Whale in the same cell. To me, this is completely outrageous, and uh, that for once, I'm I'm actually at a loss for words. Can you believe that? Who the hell does this? What a scumbag. Well, let's hope the whale gets that 114 years he is facing. But as long as there's people like attorney worksmen out there, they're more than happy to take Harvey the Whale's money and just drag these people through the mud. I, I don't get it. It's just incredible to me. Well, up next, we'll be talking to our title sponsor from Abode Real Estate, Josh Dorsey. We'll be right back. You know, moving can be stressful. I know. I've moved 13 times in 20 years and I've lived in four different states. When it finally came time to move back to Colorado, Woodland Park and Taylor County were our target locations. But before I moved back home, I was looking for a real estate broker who understood and had experience with military families and knew the area well. I found Abode Real Estate and Joshua Dorsey. I called Josh right away and it only took 35 days to not only find our forever home, but to close and move into it. Josh understood exactly what we were looking for because he's a common sense person and knows a good deal from a bad one. He'll make every effort to make sure you get the home that you absolutely want and love. As your real estate advisor, Josh will focus on client satisfaction. His business is about service and he's not happy until you're happy. Whether it's finding you a home, finding the best loan, or helping you get the most out of selling your home, Josh is there to guide you. So if you're considering a real estate professional, give Josh a call today at 719-433-4773 or email him at joshua at csabode.com. That's J-O-S-H-U-A at csabode.com. I'm confident that you will be completely satisfied.
Welcome back to the Bear Cave and on the Bear Cave Hotline. It's our title sponsor from Abode Real Estate, Josh Dorsey. Josh, how are you on this balmy day? Doing great. Doing great. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, I think I'm still chipping icicles off my face down here in the Bear Cave. It's like, man, it was like eight degrees when I woke up this morning. I don't know what it was at my house, but it was really cold. I got up to walk the dogs and I, we got this new little puppy and he was freezing his paws off and I was freezing <laughs> oh, my no. fingers off. And I think it was colder than what the thermometer was reading. I, I, it felt like three, four, five degrees to me, something like that. Yeah, it's funny because I've been talking to people in the area and they said, you know, we don't remember it being this cold in November in decades. I'm thinking, wow, because uh, yeah, yeah, it's supposed to be like 50 degrees right now. Yeah. Well, I don't mind, you know, it, uh, it helps cure the uh, Alaska homesickness every now and then, you know? Yeah, there you go. Well, speaking of uh, homes, we were talking earlier and I said, uh, every time I mention the Fed or say something about the Fed, I think I'm a jinx because it either gets raised, man, I mean, just a few short weeks ago, we were talking and it went up another, what, three quarters of a point. Yeah. Yeah, they keep raising it, but we actually saw a little bit of relief on on the interest rates for mortgages. So they came down a little bit, and they're still much higher than they than they were over the last couple of years. But you know, we did get a little bit of relief there, and and it helped some buyers get into homes and lock in good rates over the last seven or eight days. We've seen a little bit of that. So I guess as long as it's kind of stabilizing a little bit, because people are freaking out, and uh, especially up here, because in uh, Teller County right now, one of the hot topics is the short term rentals, and I was kind of wondering, it's like, how does that affect the real estate market with all these short-term rentals? I know if, if they were to ban them outright and all of a sudden you have uh, 160 homes for sale, it would crash the market up here. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's kind of a, a tough thing to manage because if you start restricting or limiting people's ability to do that, you open up a huge can of worms and you uh, you could create instability in a market. You know, that's certainly something that they would have to approach very, very, very carefully. Yeah, I think they're working on a compromise now. And I'm always amazed at how many short-term rentals there actually were up here. And I'm thinking there's 160 plus. How is that even possible? Well, they're doing better. I mean, the way that I saw it going and the limit I saw on the number of what was feasible for how many of those type of things you could support has far been surpassed. And people still seem to be doing really well, but it's also controlled a little bit just by even supply and demand like anything else. And there's some really good websites where you can go on and they'll actually just analyze for you what's in the area, what the occupancy rates are, how much people are getting per night. You can plug in a property and it'll tell you, okay, here's what you could expect to earn. And they're pretty dang accurate. And um, there's still some demand for that because, uh, and I don't I don't think that that's going away, but when you have the uh, hospitality industry kind of bleeding into residential real estate or, or taking up a, a portion of that market, it does kind of raise the question, what happens when you see disruptions in that industry or you start to see regulation? It's not like uh, hotels where, yeah, if travel goes down, they all go down. It's like this affects everyone who owns residential real estate. So you have to handle it very carefully when you start regulating and making rules for it. It has to be done in a very careful manner. Like I say, the debates are still going on. I know the Woodland Park City Council is meeting tomorrow night and that's uh, that's definitely going to come up again. But uh, I did notice that in Cripple Creek, for example, there is some construction starting to happen finally. And uh, it's like, man, they better hurry if this hotel is going to open up sometime next year. I know they're going to build some townhomes up there, but the last time we talked, there were a few properties up there and I don't know what the status is uh, in that area at the, at the moment. Yeah, you know, I was kind of excited to see, and I think maybe we touched on this a little bit last time, but there were some new builds 
coming up that were in the 200s that were brand new houses, 200s and, and low 300s. And it was like, man, this is great. Really similar in size to a lot of the old homes in Cripple Creek and brand new construction and affordably priced. And it's always good to see that. I, I only saw a handful though. So I, I don't know what kind of relief it would provide to any sort of housing shortage created by the, the casinos and things like that. But it's a, it's a good step in the right direction. How's the market faring now in uh, in the Springs area? It just seems like people are still moving in. It's home prices and interest rates just aren't stopping people from coming into Colorado. Yeah. And I think I've said before, like we're still in a strong real estate market despite these spiking interest rates. But you are seeing a lot of the buyers that are just not qualifying for a mortgage anymore or people that don't understand what effect the interest rate coming up is going to have on their mortgage or underestimate it. And so it's like you lopped off the bottom 80% of buyers in terms of budget. And all of a sudden you priced them out of the market because home price is home price. But for most people, it comes down to what's affordable month. It has to be something that you can work into your monthly budget. And it eliminated a lot of those people. But, you know, we, we listed a house the other day and and it still went under contract in three or four days and didn't have too much trouble. I am seeing some stuff where they're kind of priced wrong and priced like they should have been eight months ago for a total seller's market. And those ones have been on the market. You'll see some 40, 50, 60 days, which is kind of a normal timeline, historically speaking, for selling a house, but certainly different than what we're used to. And a lot of price reductions with those ones that were kind of swinging for the fences still, even though the rates came up. Yeah. Every now and then I'll see a listing up here from uh, local realtors on, uh, you know, social media. And uh, I'm still kind of amazed at the home prices. And uh, I gets back to the seller again, too. It's like, yeah, you love your home. You think it's worth all this kind of money. But I've noticed the same homes kind of dropping twenty five, thirty thousand dollars $30,000. So yeah, yeah. got to keep it real, people. Yeah, exactly. It's got to be affordable and you can't price it for $30,000 more than what the last one sold for. You got to price it to market. And then the other part of it is that where homes are kind of flying off the shelves before, now it's a little bit more critical what strategy you take to list your home. And it takes some expertise. It really does to make it show right. And that's one of the things I'm seeing a lot of too. You had homes that were listed eight months ago, nine months ago, where someone ran around with their iPhone and shot a bunch of poor, dark pictures, you know, that just didn't represent the home well. Or the listing descriptions and things like that, there just wasn't very much care taken in that. And now you're seeing some of that still because it takes a little while to refine that out, but in a changing market, but you're seeing less of it. And the ones that you're seeing that on are the houses that are sitting. The houses that sell quickly or or sell in in, a week still, like they did before, are the houses that are presented really well, have professional photography, aerial photos, drone shots, twilight photos of the home, and then some care taken into staging the home appropriately for whatever price point it is. There's some really cool ways to put in approximate lot boundaries and things like that. And drone photos can do great things for the property. Even if it's kind of tucked away in the trees, you can show what mountains are nearby or, or what views are nearby and things like that. And it, and it makes a huge difference on the presentation. Of course, sometimes it's not a great thing because, you know, the drone goes up there and then it catches the 25 cars in your neighbor's yard. Yeah. But you, you got to use some discretion there. But uh, it can really help boost a listing. If you see 25 cars in your neighbor's yard, then you know you're in Florissant someplace. You know? <laughs> 
You're, you're out west. I wasn't, wasn't going to go there, but you know, you could be anywhere. It's a bear cave. I go there all the time. Maybe that's why I'm in trouble all the time. Hey, speaking of drone footage and stuff like that too. Now, say I'm I'm selling a home and I, I want to get good shots. Is that part of the deal that I make with a real estate agent? How does that all kind of work? Well, it depends on uh, your realtor and your agreement with them. But uh, in, in my particular case, I always include staging consultation, which is like, you know, we go in, I have a professional stager that goes in and they'll they'll help the person arrange their home to where it's going to photograph well. And, then, and they'll kind of give them like a little bit of a to-do list of you might take this photo down or, or do this or that or move that photo photo over there or arrange the furniture this way. And they'll give them a a to-do list to help prepare for photos. And so I do that. And then, of course, I I use a professional photography company. I can take pretty good pictures. I'm decent, but I'm not as good as the guys that do it three, four times a day. So I leave that to the professionals along with the drone shots. I mean, you're supposed to have a license for that if you're doing it for hire, I believe. Exactly. um, There's a lot of ins and outs. And the the guys that are good at it are really good at it. And uh, all the time I'll get people where I, I list their home and show them the pictures and and after it's staged properly and the, and the photos are done right, the lighting's good, everything like that, they're like, wow, that's really my home. That's amazing. I, I'm not sure if I want to move. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, oh. <laughs> no, you do. You do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, we already have an agreement. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no. uh, sorry, pal. You already signed on the dotted line. Too bad. But I guess to answer your question, so I include that all in my listing package. So what I try and do is uh, is help people avoid the stress of these little costs that come on. There's going to be enough of them anyway. There's these little costs that come up as you're going through whatever sort of process or transition or whatever you're moving from here to there, whatever. There's so many incidentals. Try and limit it that at least as much as I can on my end and include it all in the listing fee. You know, it's amazing how much we take for granted because you see photos and I really think it is a selling point because if you have a nice staged home and it's got that appearance to it, then people are going to come out. They want to see it live, so to speak. So, man, it's almost like a production. You got a set dresser out there. You got a photographer. You know, I just kind of equate everything to the movie industry, but uh, it, it is amazing what we take for granted. We just see photos and we don't realize how much work actually goes into it. Yeah. I'll see listings sometimes that sit and I go, man, I've been in that property or I, I know that house or whatever. And those photos just aren't doing it justice. And I know that it would sell for, for what they're asking if they just presented it well. And then it's kind of a shame. The professional photography, it's not cheap, but the result is really pleasing for me because I get to see, okay, I have a very nice looking listing here. And then for my clients, you know, it's it's a huge value to them. And then the end result is awesome because you end up selling the home faster than it might have sold otherwise and for probably for more money. Yeah, I agree. Hey, I, I'm still getting these online, we're going to buy your home in whatever condition it's in. And uh, I almost opened one up because I was curious just to see, you know, what are you going to offer me? And then I went, nah, I don't think I'm going to. But it's just counterintuitive to what we're talking about because they're saying, ah, oh, we don't care what conditions it is. We just want to buy them. And I've got to think that these are companies that are either in the short-term rental business or they're just looking to flip it. I don't, I don't know, but I, I'm still getting a lot of that stuff online. Well, there, you know, there were a few of them in the, a while back. You know, we talked about Zillow and their whole fiasco with that. And then um, Redfin was doing a home flipping business as well. And I think they just closed that because they were not enjoying it. But um, that's a nice way to say it. 
Well, I, I want to I want to be careful how I say that, you know, but uh, they, they were not having a good time. So they closed that part of their business and you still have like Open Door. And I think they lost, they lost like a billion dollars, almost a billion dollars wow. in the last quarter. And I just go around and I look at their listings and it's like this one they paid 450 for. And now they're selling it for 420 and they're going to have expenses selling it. And it's just like, oh my gosh. But I have seen a couple of the new ones, like stuff that they've purchased within the last, say, three months or so. And you've got homes, for example, that they've got listed now for 460, 470 that they bought for 420. And they're making a good run at making some money there. But, you know, and, and maybe it'll turn around for them. I don't know if they can weather the storm of all the, the stuff they bought too high or not. But it's still a scenario where it's like, okay, here's a house that lists for 470. It's like, that's great. It'll probably sell somewhere around there, maybe a little bit less. But someone accepted 420 just for the convenience. It's like, man, I can't imagine... Like myself, I can't imagine taking fifty, sixty thousand dollars less from my house just for the sake of convenience. Like, yeah, it's slightly more convenient, but that's a lot of money. <laughs> it just seems like it's so risky that, uh, man, if I was a company like that, I don't think I'd want to just do a bunch of blind sales just for the sake of collecting inventory and then hoping that I can sell it to make a profit. I just, I just don't see. In a lot of cases, they were buying stuff sight unseen. So there are certain aspects of a property where it's like, okay, it's this square footage, it's this area, it's this year of build, whatever. And they just use their formula to calculate what it's worth. Well, you know, not taking into account that the weeds in the yard are four feet tall yeah, and yeah. it's on a busy street and all these things like that. So that's where they really got hosed on a lot of properties was like even local investors selling them stuff where it's like, okay, they're just calculating dollars per square foot here. Why don't I sell them this junky rental I've got off of wherever? And then they overpay for it and wonder why it doesn't sell. And it just goes to show that there's a little bit more to the business than, than meets the eye. I mean, it takes um, some local knowledge and a discerning eye. I think there's some guy sitting in a basement somewhere who was a philosophy major and can't pay back his student loan. <laughs> <laughs> and, and now he's scrolling on Google Earth working for a real estate agent, you know? Yeah, exactly. Oh, this one looks good. Let's pick that one. Yeah, that seems fine. <laughs> you know, go from there. And the other thing is like, you know, they, they would go and buy these places and they would set up like, typically you do an inspection and you would have someone go check the property over. They were just putting a set aside amount based on the average dollar amount for repairs for that neighborhood. And they were collecting all that data from like Amazon and things like that. Because my understanding is a lot of the programs that instructors were using for a while were created by Amazon. Amazon was collecting all the data on all the homes and all the inspections and they were selling it. So the, these companies would have this data and, and look at it and say, okay, the average cost for inspection resolution in this neighborhood is this amount. And so they would just blanket the neighborhood like any home we're buying gets this amount. Well, you don't know like if there's a long-term water leak or a crack in the foundation or whatever. If you're just right. applying your blanket 2500 bucks to every house, it's just, I don't know how they thought that was going to work. Well, maybe Jeff Bezos thought it was a good idea seeing how his latest rocket just blew up and uh, you know, he's, <laughs> he's got to make some money. Yeah. Maybe that's why he's going to lay off a bunch of people. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. All right, Josh, well, any kind of current listings that you have right now that are maybe a hot property you want to talk about? Yeah, I've got one coming up out actually like down towards Fort Carson and Colorado Springs here. It's going to be a good one. I'm, I'm excited about it because it's kind of in that real affordable price range for maybe a first time home buyer or something like that. It's like 1,300 square feet. It's going to be around 340, new carpet. It, it's really nice on the inside and well taken care of. And, and I think that'll be coming up in... Um, 
oh, probably about a month or so, maybe maybe three weeks. And then I, I have another one that I mentioned to you before that's closer to coming up now that's out east. Really interesting property, about six and a half or 6.8 acres or something like that. Nice lot, great views of Pikes Peak, just a cool property. They planted a ton of trees on it quite a while back. So they sort of invested their time in that and it, and it really paid off. And and so now you've got uh, this well-treed property, 10 minutes east of the airport, super nice as well. And then uh, there's one coming up in Teller County that's a three-bed, two-bathroom, 1,600-square-foot cabin that is going to be under 400, and it's a newer property as well. And that one... I think it's going to fly off the shelf. It's priced really right. And, um, you know, maybe even a little bit under the seller's really motivated. So it's uh, just before, I guess it's not quite in Florissant. It's more in the divide area, but uh, got a few good ones coming up. Well, that means that anybody who's interested should be giving you a call and you can get into that Christmas home of yours. Yeah, absolutely. Or or find out about it first from here before it hits the market. And yeah, got some real good stuff coming up here. So, well, there you go. All right, Josh. Well, I appreciate you spending some time with us as always. And, uh, if I don't talk to you before Thanksgiving, you have a great holiday and we'll be getting back to you in a few short weeks. You as well, Dennis. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Josh. Have a good day. Bye. That was our title sponsor from Abode Real Estate, Josh Dorsey. And I say it every time we talk to him, I get great information from Josh. And if you're looking for property in Colorado Springs or the Teller County area, give Josh a call at Abode Real Estate. Well, coming up next, it's my favorite part of the show and that's story time with Michelle. So stick around. Are you tired of gambling? Or maybe gambling just isn't your thing? Then you need to come visit the historic Butte Theater, located in the heart of Cripple Creek, Colorado. Enjoy our classic melodramas, Shakespeare of the West, musicals, comedies, and our community's favorite Christmas show. The Butte is fun for the whole family. So get your tickets today at thebuttetheater.com and come join in our fun. And right now it's story time with Michelle on the Bear Cave Hotline. Hey, Michelle, how are you? Good. How's it going in the Bear Cave? Oh, it's beautiful. Enjoying this heat wave. Yeah, you and me both. When the hell does it get down to 10 degrees in November? Right? I know. I'm wearing like three shirts today in my office. I mean, we went from, uh, let's see, summer, Indian summer to winter. So I'm I'm hoping that in the next couple of weeks, we're going to have fall and then go back to winter. But I don't know. That'd be awesome. This is like January temperatures it, right it now. It is. It's stupid. Yeah. What the hell? It's annoying. Yeah. Well, as it is still Veterans Month, what story have you got for us this week? So I don't know if a lot of people are familiar with GAR, which stands for the Grand Army of the Republic. And 
Uh, we have a cemetery plot up in Mount Pisgah here in Cripple Creek just for Gar. And so I started looking into it and it actually has a really fascinating history. All right. Well, let's roll with it. Yeah, let's dive into it. So after the end of the American Civil War, various states and local organizations were formed for veterans to network and maintain connections with each other. Many of the veterans used their shared experience as a basis for fellowship. Groups of men began joining first for the camaraderie and later for political power. Emerging as a most influential among the various organizations during the first post-war years was the Grand Army of the Republic, founded on April 6, 1866. That's a minute. It always has something to do with politics, doesn't it? And I'm going to avoid that part of it, but it's very interesting. Fair enough. (laughs) So they started on the principles of fraternity, charity, and loyalty in Decatur, Illinois, by Dr. Benjamin F. Stevenson. The GAR was organized into departments at the state level and posts at the community level, and military-style uniforms were worn by its members. There were posts in every state in the U.S., and later, there were several posts overseas. Its peak membership was in 1890 with 410,000 members. Impressive. Yeah. And we don't even know about these people. (laughs) 410,000 people in the 1800s? Yes. Oh, my. So the Grand Army of the Republic, also known as GAR, was a fraternal organization composed of veterans of the Union Army, Union Navy, and the Marines who served in the American Civil War. The Grand Army of the Republic, the largest of Union Army veterans organizations, was the most powerful single-issue political lobby of the late 19th century, securing a massive pensions for veterans and helping to elect five post-war presidents from its own membership. See, there's the politics. I'm going to let that lay low. (laughs) Yeah, this kind of almost reminds me of the American Legion in a way. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, well, continue. <laughs> to its members, it was also a secret fraternal order, a source of local charity, a provider of entertainment in small municipalities, and a patriotic organization. Linking men through their experience of the war, the Guard became amongst the first organized advocacy group in American politics, promoting patriotic education, helping to make Memorial Day a national holiday, and lobbying Congress to establish a regular veterans' pensions. The Guard promoted voting rights for black veterans, as many white veterans recognized their demonstrated patriotism and sacrifices, providing one of the first racially integrated social fraternal organizations in America. How interesting during that time frame as well. It is. So in his general order, number 11, dated May 5th, 1868, First Guard Commander-in-Chief General John A. Logan declared May 30th to be Memorial Day, also referred to for many years as Decoration Day, calling upon the Guard membership to make the May 30th observance an annual occurrence. Although not the first time war graves had been decorated, Logan's order effectively established Memorial Day as a day upon which Americans now pay tribute to all their war casualties, missing in action, and deceased veterans. So that's pretty impressive. They started the pensions, more recognition for the pensions. They got black veterans pensions, and they actually got Memorial Day on the calendar. You know, I can see why that would work in Teller County because of the mines and the tremendous amount of veterans that we have up here, but I had no idea that organization actually existed. Oh, yeah. And like I said, it started over in Illinois. So I was pretty impressed when I started reading. I was like, wow, I had no idea because I heard of GAR because I knew the cemetery plot, but I had no idea what all they did. Yeah, me too. Terry GAR. That's the only GAR I've heard <laughs> <Right>? of. Right. <laughs> 
<laughs> Just saying. So a little bit more. So although an overwhelmingly male organization, the GAR is known to have had at least two women who were members. The first female known to be admitted to GAR was Katie Brownwell. She served in the Union Army with her husband, Robert, at the first Battle of Bull Run in Virginia and at Battle of New Bern in North Carolina. Katie was admitted as a member in 1870. The GAR insignia is engraved on her gravestone in North Burial Ground in Providence, Rhode Island. And then in 1897, the GAR admitted Sarah Emma Emmons, who served in the 2nd Michigan Infantry as a disguised as a man named Franklin Thompson from May 1861 until April 1863. So she served two years as a male. <laughs> Didn't we have a story about a female that was uh, yeah. serving as a male? Yeah. It, if I recall, I can't remember what her name was, but uh, we did have a story like that. It happens more than we even know. So <laughs> she collected um, affidavits from former comrades in effort to petition for a veteran's pension, which she received in July 1884. Edmonds was the only member for a brief period as she died September 5th, 1898. However, she was given a funeral with military honors when she was reburied in Houston in 1901. It was the GAR organization was dissolved in 1956 at the death of its last member. Wow. Yeah. So if you ever get a chance to come up here, the Cripple Creek District Cemetery of Civil War Veterans was located about half a mile west of Victor on land owned by A.A. Stern, just west of Sunnyside Cemetery. The fact is that these graves were the graves of Civil War veterans who were buried in a long forgotten cemetery outside of Victor. It was a cemetery for members of the Grand Army of the Republic. These veterans went to Cripple Creek during the gold rush and died there. All the veterans were originally buried together in the separate Gar Cemetery located a few hundred yards west of the present Sunnyside Cemetery on private land. Later, during the 1920s, the bodies were moved to their present graves. 38 were moved to Mount Pisgah Cemetery in Cripple Creek, and the remaining eight went to Sunnyside Cemetery, and 23 remain true unknowns. You know, I have seen those graves at Sunnyside, and I didn't really know what it was. I just figured, oh, there's some war guys here. Right. Right. So now you know. No kidding. Yeah. And the one up in Mount Pisgah actually has a fence around it. So they're all buried in their own lot, separated from everybody else. So you know the next time I'm coming up, I'm going to have to go and check it out now. Absolutely. So thanks for letting me do that because I was absolutely fascinated once I started reading about it. I had no idea their involvement in different political realms and getting veterans their pensions and things like that. So pretty cool. No, that is cool. Thanks for finding that and sharing that story because, uh, yeah, I had no idea that kind of history was uh, even around. Nope. I mean, not only up here, but the entire nation. Yeah. So who knows how many different guard cemetery sections there are throughout the nation. And to have them come all the way out here is a really really cool connection. That is, and you know how I love cemeteries because you can learn so much history when you go visit these cemeteries and and taking the tours and stuff like that too. It's very interesting to me. So now I'm going to have to dig into it and yeah, I'm going to have to check it out for sure. Yes. So come on up any, well, after the cold. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Maybe next week. I don't know. Wow. Awesome story. Well, thanks. Well, what else is happening up in Cripple Creek? I guess the highlight of what's going on is the Butte Theater with the Wizard of Oz Colorado, right? Yeah, that opens November 25th, and it runs all the way through December 31st. We have our tickets, so you better get up here and come see it. I have not seen this one before, but they're, the characters are going to be like Colorado people that we can associate with, like Tesla is going to be in it. So it, nice. it, yeah, yeah. You know, you and I talked about Young Frankenstein. What a fabulous job they did with this 
this is going to be great. And the entertainment is just phenomenal. Yeah, and we've got uh, a lot of local actors that are participating in this production as well, from what I understand. Yeah, yeah. They always have uh, auditions for, because you always need kids in the show, you know, younger kids. So the Crook Creek Victor School has its own drama club. They call out to them and any other kids in the community that want to come and audition and be a member in the show. Yeah, my favorite part is always the Oleos, and I uh, I have a feeling they're going to knock this one out of the park. Oh my gosh, it is usually so funny. I, you're literally crying. It's so hilarious. Yeah, maybe I better bring an extra diaper with me just in case <laughs> I pee my pants like last time. I, I was going to say that. I was like, no, I just won't say it, but you're right. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll look forward to that. And uh, like I said, we're going to get Zach on here uh, maybe after the holiday and uh, let him promote that for us as well. Absolutely. uh, Anyway, if I don't uh, talk to you before Thanksgiving, you have a great holiday and we'll see you the uh, last week of November. Sounds good. Yes. Happy Thanksgiving. Eat lot. Be safe out there. And we'll see y'all soon. All right, Michelle. Sounds great. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Well, that was Michelle Roselle talking to us from the Heritage Center up in Cripple Creek. Wow, what an interesting story. Gar, I had no idea. Well, up next on the Bear Cave Hotline, it's our field producer, Trevor Phipps. Trevor, how are you today? Good. How are you doing today? Kind of a weird day. Kind of woke up myself not feeling all that snappy, but uh, yeah, we're going to press on nonetheless, but uh, kind of a, a busy week. We did have a tragedy that happened in Teller County this week, and uh, boy, it was just, uh, it's its one of those things where you're kind of at a loss for words, right? Yeah, it was pretty sad, I guess. Well, when it first came out, it first came out as a shooting, and then as more information developed, it was a murder-suicide, what they're saying. So I guess the sad part was there was three children that were at the house, and one of the kids was the one who called 911, and then when the police showed up, two of the kids were outside, and then they went in and they saw two adults who were deceased, and they said it was obvious that it was a murder-suicide, and then there was an infant in the house, too, that was physically unharmed. Now, you finally got a press release the other day, too, right? And uh, what did that press release have to say? Yeah, well, shortly after it all came out, the press release was from Andrew Womack Ministries saying that the two people, the Sean Mills and Adriana Trujillo Mills, that were found deceased were former students at Harris Bible College and employees with Andrew Womack Ministries. So, um, I and then I think I'd heard that they hadn't really been here that long as well. So they've just recently moved here with three kids. And um, now, as far as I know, the kids are in custody of a relative that came from out of state to come get them. You know, uh, we may fun and we're sarcastic. We do a lot of satire on the show. And, uh, you know, we talk about King Andy all the time and Andy Land and that kind of stuff. But uh, I'm, you know, I wouldn't go there in a million years because this is such a tragedy of epic proportion that uh, it's kind of indicative of what's happening around the country right now, too, because we had a tragedy last weekend in, in uh, University of Virginia where three football players were murdered. Then we had four more students in Idaho that were murdered. So it's not these crazy white supremacist guys that are going around killing people, but it's all seems to be, you know, somewhat younger people that these tragedies are all kind of being surrounded by. And I don't know the ages of the people, you know, who uh, were involved in this whole murder suicide and fluorescent, but uh, the tragedy of it all to me is that the selfishness and you leave three kids in this world without their parents for whatever reason, that's the ultimate tragedy to me. And it's just sad. 
Yeah, it's too bad. And it, it is kind of weird. This is the, the second time in the last like two or three years that something exactly like this has happened, where one parent killed the other and left the kids without parents, which is kind of strange that Teller County, two of the same exact incident happened. Yeah, I mean... See, I would have guessed that it was a, a military family of some sort because it seems like that's generally, I don't want to say generally, but it seems like that's the case a lot of times when someone in the military either commits suicide or has a tragedy like this in their lives. But uh, I guess time will tell and we'll uh, at some point know what happened. But man, I'll tell you what, my uh, uh, thoughts and prayers, because that's just hollow. I just feel bad for those children and uh, I'm glad that there's a relative that's taking care of them. But uh, man, what a tragedy. Anyway, moving on to other stuff. Uh, what kind of stories are you working on this week? I kind of have been focusing on election stuff. Um, the election results are pretty much all the way in. And the only one statewide that is still close, the ballot measure that is still close, is the to allow grocery stores and other stores to sell wine is currently at about 50.5% yes with 99% reporting. So that's the only one that hasn't really been called yet. Well, look at it this way. If uh, Lauren Bobert actually loses, she can open up another store. Maybe this will be a liquor store this time instead of a, uh, you know, shoot them up bar and grill. Yeah. And she's actually ahead right now by 1,122 votes. So it's, yeah, it's, and that is within the half a percent that would require, that would force a recount. You know, last week I kind of uh, talked about the Senate being firmly in the grasp of the Republicans and boy, that was a mistake. I mean, I, I have to 180 that yeah. one, but this, uh, yeah, this red wave that we were been talking about just, and you were right about this. It turned out to be uh, a mere ripple. It's going to be an interesting next few days to see where it all kind of falls. And uh, clearly the Senate is in the hands of the uh, Democrats at this point. But you made an interesting comment, too. And you're saying it was probably because of the abortion rulings by the Supreme Court. And I have a tendency to agree with you. I think that was the one detriment that hurt the Republicans during this entire midterm election. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, for one, not all Republicans are pro-life or believe in getting rid of all abortions so you have that and then the other thing is there's still in the country there's a good portion of unaffiliated voters i think that roe v wade decision might have scared away a lot of the unaffiliated voters and then kind of another part of that too is the way the democrat party was campaigning i mean i saw it on both sides that it seemed like this year well in the last few years but this year people were spending more money on coming out with ads talking smack about the other person and mudslinging the other person than they were really saying what themselves were going to do. But I found on the Democrat side that the Democrats were definitely using the Roe v. Wade decision against their Republican opponents in just about every race that I saw advertised for. No, I think you're absolutely spot on with that analogy. And uh, the other thing I think that hurt the Republicans is Donald Trump. And uh, I think people are just tired of hearing the rhetoric. Not everybody, of course, but uh, getting back to those purple voters, it seems like the purple voters for sure voted Democrat versus Republican. And I think uh, Roe v. Wade was definitely a determining factor on how people were voting for sure. But we'll see. I don't want to have Trump and Biden as my options for 2024. I'll write you in, you write me in, and then uh, our conscience will be clear after that. <laughs> Good Lord, what a choice. 
All right. Well, I guess we'll see. Uh, I do know that the marijuana dispensary issue passed in Cripple Creek, and it seemed like it passed by a, a large number. Uh, when I talked about that last week, the numbers were just coming in, but the numbers were actually greater than what I had initially talked about. The marijuana one wasn't close, but the tax question was close. I think there was just a handful of votes that decided to do their way. I haven't seen the most recent numbers, but at the last Clover County Commissioner meeting, they were talking about it like it was a dead deal. So they pretty much announced that it did pass in Cripple Creek. I guess it's going to take a, probably a couple of years because they still have to figure out zoning and regulating and all sorts of other stuff surrounded with it, which seems silly to me that, of course, the people vote something, but then, of course, the government has to slow down the process through all their loopholes. Well, I have a feeling that we're going to see which Target or Walmart of uh, cannabis stores are going to place their, their anchor down into the ground up in uh, Cripple Creek because I think that's mostly like it was going to happen. There's going to be some seasoned stores that wind up opening up their doors up there, you know, whenever that takes place. Well, one thing's for sure that if uh, you're going up to Creeple Creek to gamble in the next couple of years, you got a really nice place to stay and you can eat mushrooms and smoke pot and go back to your room, but don't drive. <laughs> it is what it is. When did Cripple Creek all of a sudden become this hotbed of controversy? Because now we got this recall coming with the city council that's going to happen on January 24th. I guess you have to kind of read between the lines to see what's really going on. It always kind of has been. It's just we've had controversy in other places like Woodland Park and the school board. <laughs> just There's been other controversy going on, so Cripple Creek hasn't been talked about as much, I think. That and that, the fact that they didn't have a bear cave until we showed up. <laughs> anyway, moving on to something more relevant, Lady Panther's volleyball how did they do they're doing pretty good they they got second place in their league and they went to regional and they swept regional against two teams three matches and out and then they went to the state championship but unfortunately during the first tournament of the state championship which is last thursday they played miwa at 11 a.m and they lost three to one so they were eliminated first team they played so that was kind of a bummer but they haven't been to state championship for a while they had a really successful season nonetheless overall record was 17-10 and their league record was 11-1. Way to go, Lady Panthers. That is a huge success and congratulations to you. It's actually a pretty good fall sport season for Brooklyn Park High School. Boys and girls cross country, boys and girls and regional, they both took fourth place at regional tournament, so that qualified them for the state championship tournament. At the tournament, the boys placed 14th statewide and the girls took 17th statewide. Individually, Emma Graber placed eighth for the girls' team. Stella Schroeder took ninth for the girls' team. And Joseph Begley on the boys' team took 12th place. And then boys' golf. The golf had a pretty good season. Um, they qualified one golfer, which is senior TJ McCaffey. He went to the 3A championship tournament, where he played against over 80 other star golfers. So he ended up tying with three or four people in 42nd place. That means he's finished in the top half of the state championship golf tournament. So that was he wants to go on and possibly be a pro at a golf course after high school. So. Hey, maybe you can caddy for him. <laughs> yeah. Well, one thing that's positive in professional sports is the Rocky Mountain Vibes' Ulysses Cantu made the all-star team for the PBL, so congratulations to him. Yeah, no, that's awesome. That's As bad as the team was for the first half, it kind of kept them out of the playoff shots. I figured that there wouldn't be anybody that was good enough to make all-star team. I know that they're re-signing a lot of players right now, so um, hopefully that, that momentum that they had at the end of last season is going to continue into the spring. I, I, man, I'm already talking about baseball. It's only November. <laughs> I know. He's jumping the gun a little bit. Yeah, I can't wait to see him start playing again but uh, anyway we went through this last week how you were already talking about high school baseball i know 
So what about basketball and hockey? <laughs> yeah, nobody watches that stuff. Oh, yeah, nobody cares. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I like Basketball. Yeah, me too. All right, Trevor. Well, uh, looks like we got some things that are coming up uh, next week to report. So we'll stick around and see what you got for us. All right. Sounds good. You have a good day. All right, Trevor. We'll talk to you soon. Well, once again, that was our field producer, Trevor Phipps, on the Bear Cave Hotline. And when we come back, it's news of the weird and find out who gets the pleasure of being tossed on the bear pile this week. So don't go away. Are you having a hard time seeing out of those dirty Colorado windows? Or maybe it's just time to finally clean those sidewalks, garages, and those stains on services around your home and office. Well, now there's a solution, and it's Peak Washing LLC. Veteran-owned and operated, Peak Washing LLC is your mobile window cleaning and pressure washing solution. Their services range from residential jobs to commercial projects using a safe and environmentally friendly approach. Peak Washing LLC can also clean and sanitize heavy construction equipment. There's virtually no job that Peak Washing can't handle. So call Greg at 719-651-7518 or find them on their Facebook page under Peak Washing LLC. That's Peak Washing LLC, your solution to that dirty job. back to the bear cave and uh, god once again this week you actually stuck around and as you know by now it is time for news of the weird headline this week reads not your job mary k brown of durand wisconsin was charged with physical abuse of an elder person after she reported surgery on a man under her care Brown was working as a hospice nurse in Spring Valley Health and Rehab Center where she cared for a patient suffering from severe frostbite on his feet. Now, Brown took it upon herself to remove the victim's right foot. Yep, I just said that. A nurse at a hospice and health care facility took it upon herself to remove the victim's right foot. And of course, this was all done without a doctor's permission. Another nurse who held the victim's hand during the procedure said he was moaning and squeezing her hand, you think? And he told yet another nurse that he felt everything and it hurt very bad. Can you imagine what is going on with this nurse? Now here's where it really gets bizarre and weird. Brown told another nurse that her family has a taxidermy shop and that she intended to preserve the foot and put it on display with a sign saying, wear your boots kids. She's due in court on December 6th. Are you kidding me right now? I mean, who in the hell does this? Unbelievable. But that just means that she could possibly be a strong candidate for the bear pile. Each week we nominate the top person, place, and or thing who should be tossed in the bear pile and eaten by the bears. This week the person, place, and or thing to be tossed in the bear pile to be eaten by the bears is... And this was a toss-up. It was a tough one. But Marjorie Taylor Greene for sticking her nose uninvited as usual into state politics that doesn't concern her. So 
You're licking the boots days are not over. The nominations this week are, and this is a toss-up as well, but it looks like Little Al, yep, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas gets the nod for throwing U.S. Customs and Border Protection Commissioner Chris Magnus under the big yellow school bus. Wonder if Little Al ever found those 40 people listed on the terrorist watch list who snuck into the U.S. last year. Oh, we've got an eye on them. Remember that statement? Number two, a no-brainer. Mary Kay Brown for practicing her taxidermy sign skills on a live human being. Why not just go and buy a sign, Mary? Not really great advertising for Spring Valley Health and Rehab Center, is it? And number three, attorney Mark Worksman for being Harvey the Well's attorney. What a horrible human being. I mean, that's it. Just because you became his attorney, you get to go on the bear pile. Ah, just another scumbag breathing air in California. Well, that's it for me this week. I'm heading out of this cold studio for a warmer part of the Bear Cave. I would like to thank our sponsors, Abode Real Estate, the Historic Butte Theater, and Peak Washing LLC. Special thanks to our guests this week from Abode Real Estate, our title sponsor, Josh Dorsey. As always, thanks to my producing partner, Michelle Roselle, for bringing us story time again this week. And uh, wow, what a great story it was. And as always, thanks to our field producer, Trevor Fitz, for his hard work on the show. If you have an event coming up or you just want to be a sponsor of the show, hit us up on our Facebook page, This Week in the Bear Cave, or our Instagram page with the same name. And as always, you can send your hate mail to thisweekinthebearcave at gmail.com. I got quite a bit of it after last week. Uh, Gee, shocking, right? You can access the show on Spotify, Anchor by Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcast. Our celebrity guest next week is going to be Sniffy's Border Chuggy Boy, Alejandro Mayorkas. We would like to know if he has anyone else in mind that he can throw under the bus. You know, just kind of get prepared. Marjorie Taylor Greene was going to come into the Bear Cave hotline, but she was busy changing her Tinder profile. Well, I guess she does have priorities. We just don't happen to be one of them. Well, good news is Marjorie warm up that tongue for the Donald. There's going to be plenty of bootlicking in your future, guaranteed. Talk to you again next week, everyone. Be well and thanks for listening. We dream Sam and Max. This Week in the Bear Cave is produced by Animus Productions, all rights reserved in perpetuity. 